service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Gianni Versace are insane. He was a runway iconoclast who outfitted the likes of Madonna, Demi Moore, Prince, Sylvester Stallone, and Don Johnson. He lived like Louis XIV and counted Princess Di and Elton John among his friends. He was plagued by rumors of mafia ties and a secret health diagnosis, rumors that persisted long after his death. He was gunned down by a gigolo serial killer who'd been on the lam for two months after murdering four other men in three states. And Gianni Versace made great fashion that was featured in great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Frisco Jazz Band performing Nighttime in Little Italy in 1919. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Barry Sonnenfeld's Men in Black. And why would I play you that specific slice of Balcinian cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 15, 1997. And that was the day that one of America's most wanted assassinated Gianni Versace in broad daylight on his own front steps in Miami's South Beach. On this episode, haute couture in trash culture, mafia ties, a gigolo serial killer, and Gianni Versace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season three, Hollywoodland. Sylvester Stallone was playing golf when the feds told him his life was in danger. This wasn't one of his many on-screen action hero lives. Not the life of mythical vet John Rambo, who barreled through the jungle in a bullet bandolier and headband on the run from Vietnamese soldiers. 
nor the life of Marion Cobra Cobretti, member of LAPD's elite zombie squad, who took down a cabal of New World terrorists with the aid of his badass Ray-Bans. This was Michael Sylvester Gardenzio Stallone's real life. The life that saw a young man with partial face paralysis catapult to a global sex symbol during the hairsprayed heyday of the 1980s. The rags to rocky life that brought a hungry Italian stallion from sleeping at New York City's Port Authority bus terminal to living large on an 11-acre villa with nine bathrooms and an Olympic-sized pool here in Miami. And according to the FBI, the real life of Sylvester Stallone was under threat. It was summer 1997, and Stallone was at an inflection point in his career. After five Rockies, three Rambos, and an arsenal of other American gladiator roles, the 51-year-old wanted to be more than a hired muscle knot. Sylvester Stallone wanted to be appreciated as an actor. He hoped his newest movie, Copland, would do the trick. It was a proper film, not his typical shoot-em-up fare, a novelistic neo-noir thriller. In Copland, Stallone played a subdued small-town sheriff beaten down by fates and justices and dirty cop corruption. He'd gained 40 pounds for the role and worked for scale. He held his own against ace tough guys Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel, and Ray Liotta. He was brooding, he was great. Early buzz suggested that the critics noticed. But just as Stallone was deliberately moving away from ultra-violence, Ultraviolence was moving toward him. On the golf course, Stallone noticed six helicopters hovering about 400 yards away. The distant buzz was unnerving, and for good reason. All around him, one of the largest manhunts in FBI history was unfolding, a dragnet on the scale of the legendary search for 1930s gangster John Herbert Dillinger. More than two weeks earlier, one of the FBI's 10 most wanted was spotted in West Palm Beach. And that was more than 70 miles north from where Stallone was, but Miami PD now had very good reason to believe the armed and very dangerous fugitive was in their midst. Officials identified the suspect as 27-year-old Andrew Philip Cunanan, sometime alias Andrew Da Silva, white, male, dark brown hair, brown eyes, known to pretend he's rich. And sometimes he was, but always with other people's money. According to the fugitive's own mother, her son got by as, quote, a high-class homosexual prostitute. DOJ posters said Kunanen was wanted for second-degree murder and questioning in four other deaths. What flyers didn't reveal was the sheer sadistic brutality of these killings. The first victim was found in a Minneapolis loft, a 28-year-old ex-Navy man rolled up in a rug head bludgeoned with a claw hammer. Autopsy revealed he was struck not once or twice, but 27 times. The second, a 33-year-old architect, was also in Minnesota, 60 miles north, shot once in the head, left near a lake. The third victim, holy shit, a 72-year-old real estate tycoon discovered bound, gagged, and dead on the floor of a Chicago garage. His chest stabbed numerous times with either a screwdriver or a pruning pole. It was hard to tell, and both were turned up in the investigation. His neck was cut with a saw blade, wounds so deep he was nearly decapitated. The man's ribs were all broken, 
apparently crushed by the two cement bags left beside his corpse. His head was also wrapped in masking tape like a mummy. Again, holy shit. And the rich man's green Lexus was also missing. Until it wasn't. A few days later, police located the vehicle in a Pennsylvania cemetery, parked near the body of a 45-year-old caretaker who'd been shot execution-style in the back of the head. And the executed man's red Chevy pickup was gone. And now the feds had intel that someone fitting this lunatic's description had been asking around Florida about Stallone. It was no secret Sly lived in Miami Beach. Locals called his extravagant bayside villa Casa Rocky. The actor sometimes had trouble with nosy boaters anchoring behind his estate to see what they could see. Stallone even made local headlines when he tried to block a public path near his property with an eight-foot security fence. Rollerbladers were pissed off. So when a customer at Planet Hollywood's recent opening in Key West started asking where Stallone was, bartenders didn't think much about it. Everybody knew that Stallone was one of the chain's five celebrity investors. It was part of the attraction. It just seemed like the chit-chat of a star-struck rube amped for some signed memorabilia and an overpriced drink. But that changed on July 15th when a gunman who looked like that customer at Planet Hollywood, who in turn looked like the psycho from America's Most Wanted, executed someone else in broad daylight in front of witnesses. And this nut job had assassinated a celebrity. And not just any celebrity, one of Sly Stallone's friends, another Italian signore, Gianni Versace. Versace the runway genius who lived like a Medici prince. Versace, the household name partly responsible for Miami Vice's pastel-suited style. Stallone knew Versace from the early 90s, when the actor was dating supermodel Janice Dickinson. Versace courted him with truckloads of expensive gifts, full pantries of fine china, rooms of luxe fabric, trunks of clothes. Versace, as was his way with celebrities, spared no expense. Stallone reciprocated by helping launch a Versace housewares line in 1995 in a provocative ad. He posed nude with Claudia Schiffer in an Adam and Eve homage. Porcelain Versace plates covered their X-rated bits. Stallone was a guest at Versace's lavish lakeside house in Italy. They'd hit the gym together. He even chose Versace to design his costume for his 1995 film, Judge Dredd. But who cares that critics panned the movie as one of Stallone's worst? He looked badass. And that gilded future cop getup was unmistakably Versace. Chunky golden epaulets, black cat suit, Euro trash wet dream. It even had a cod piece. And now, Versace was dead. It could have been Stallone. It could still be Stallone. The murder was so brazen, it seemed like a mob-style hit. Before 9 a.m., Versace was outside his Ocean Drive mansion, fumbling with his keys when a gunman walked up, shot him point-blank in the head twice, and then coolly walked away. And the shooter was still on the loose. It had to be Andrew Cunanan. Within the hour, police found the stolen red Chevy from Cunanan's alleged fourth victim in a parking garage near the Versace mansion. Beside the truck was a heap of freshly sweaty clothes. But what's more, the vehicle had been parked there since June 12th, and that was more than a month ago. Stallone still couldn't believe it. This guy had been in town for weeks and weeks, 
and locals were only on high alert now, after he'd murdered a celebrity in broad daylight. And the more Stallone learned, the more infuriated he became. Miami Beach was what, 10 blocks long? Why hadn't cops plastered South Florida with his photo? And the guy was known as a gay hustler, and there were only like 10 gay clubs in the city. But why hadn't the police dispatched undercovers in each one? Stallone knew a few things about cops. Shit, he just played one in Copland. And he knew that it sounded like they hadn't been doing their jobs. And maybe if the Miami PD had been less worried about Stallone's gate, taking a break from interviewing every stupid rollerblader outside his house, maybe his friend would still be alive. And maybe he wouldn't be having this conversation with black suits on the green. And maybe those helicopters wouldn't still be hovering, standing there, surrounded by the manicured grass and the ocean and the sky. Stallone had to admit, though, you know, if it had to happen, then this wouldn't be such a bad place to go. It was the 4th of July weekend in 1995, and Madonna was having trouble falling asleep. Maybe it was all the naked men around the house. Naked dead men, sculpted in alabaster and marble, artifacts of past centuries. Madonna kept wanting to press her face against their cool, hard bodies. Gianni Versace's lavish villa at northern Italy's Lake Como, where Madonna was vacationing for the American holiday was a four-story monument of flamboyant distractions. Opulent bedrooms, three acres of fairy tale gardens, a museum-worthy collection of oil paintings and 19th century furniture, a tennis court, a private dock, and an impressive array of naked dead men. It was all very Versace. Bruce Springsteen honeymooned at the Lake Como retreat in 1985 and Versace's good friend Elton John was a frequent guest over the years, as were Sting and his wife Trudy. Prince had been there too. Versace found Prince strange. It took the little guy three days to notice he'd been staying on a lake. And now the Italian designer had generously invited Madonna to unwind here after wrapping her second Versace campaign, a minimal and sophisticated evening gown shoot that would help class up her image. After last year's Late Show fiasco, when she said the word fuck 14 times and asked David Letterman to smell her panties, Madonna's image needed some serious scrubbing. In six months, she would be shooting her dream role as Ava Perone, the Argentine first lady in the Oscar bait movie version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1978 musical. Madonna needed to be convincingly elegant. And Versace's Lake Como Villa was the perfect place to practice, Madonna felt like a spoiled princess. She brought an entourage, and Sri Lankan servants in white gloves tended to every whim of Madonna and her guests. New Versace gowns appeared daily. Fresh bellinis arrived every sunset, which they drank under a giant magnolia tree beside the crystal clear lake. A speedboat captain was on standby if they wanted to swim. Gorgeous Italian bodyguards even took Madonna's dog, Chiquita, on long, doting walks. Lucky little bitch. Madonna pinched herself to make sure she wasn't dreaming. Now, this wasn't an impressionable 1980s-era Madonna fresh from watching Basquiat shoot up on a mattress. This was the 80 million records sold Madonna, 
Madonna, who'd done Dick Tracy, and co-star Warren Beatty. Business mogul Madonna, who'd been on the cover of Forbes in 1990 and secured a whopping $60 million advance for a multimedia joint venture with Time Warner in 1992. This Madonna also had her own Miami Beach mansion, right near Stallone's Casa Rocky. This Madonna knew massive, massive wealth. And to this Madonna, the world's most celebrated material girl, the ruthless extravagance of Versace's lifestyle was daunting. Maybe that's why she couldn't sleep. They called Gianni Versace the sun king of fashion for good reason. At Lake Como, one of his four opulent residences, he cultivated his own personal Versailles. Versace's mansion in Miami's South Beach was equally unreal. When he purchased it in the early 1990s, Versace invested $33 million to renovate the former apartment complex and next-door hotel into a palatial estate of 16 bedrooms, two kitchens, a 54-foot mosaic swimming pool flecked with 24-karat gold, and a shower reportedly big enough for 10 people to share simultaneously. You know, as one does. There was also at least one toilet made of onyx. And ever since he opened his own fashion house in 1978 with his older brother Santos' help, Versace had been spitting in the eye of so-called good taste. He turned the delicate craft of haute couture into an erotic spectacle. He made men's silk shirts with ornately tacky prints into luxury goods. He put socialites in bondage gear. He put Princess Diana in gold studs. He posed supermodel Linda Evangelista in a see-through top grabbing her crotch and touching her breast in the New Yorker's erudite pages. He took high fashion from its precious, self-contained atelier and yanked it out onto the street. And Versace created cultural moments, Hollywood moments, huge red carpet moments. It was the 1991 Oscars when Cindy Crawford turned up with Richard Gere, still smoldering from Pretty Woman's success in a spectacular red Versace gown with a plunging neck and elegant backslit. That couple, those red carpet photos, that red hot dress, that was a moment. It was a moment in 1994 when actress Elizabeth Hurley went from Hugh Grant arm candy to household name when she wore an astounding black Versace gown, held seductively together with giant gold safety pins to the premiere of Four Weddings and a Funeral. And 27 years later, the dress has its own Wikipedia entry. And JLo's emerald green naval cleavage wowzer from the 2000 Grammys, that was a moment's moment. And they weren't creating fabulous cultural moments back in Versace's hometown. Born Giovanni Maria Versace in Reggio Calabria, a southern city riddled with earthquakes, bandits, and malaria. Versace's mother was a successful dressmaker his family was firmly bourgeois. But when a 20-something Versace moved to Milan to pursue contracts with the country's established fashion houses, he found that Northern Italians generally regarded his Southern ilk as peasants and wastrels, yellow-toothed brutes from a cursed region. To Northerners, Versace's native Calabria was the stinky foot in their fine leather Italian boot. But Versace assimilated. He was ambitious. He lost his southern accent, cut ties with friends from home, did the cosmopolitan things a young upwardly mobile man does to air kiss asses in a European city and build a network. But the more Versace ascended Milan's upper echelons, the more he found them uptight, stodgy, and intentionally drab. 
and the narrower he found the guardrails of this polite society, the more liberally he experimented in his work. Versace experimented by mixing elements of fashion that would supposedly clash, leather and silk, suede and linen, denim and satin. He experimented by sending women down the runway in bikini bras and tailored pantsuits way back in 1980. He experimented with the metal used in butcher's gloves and invented an entirely new material for evening wear, a metal mesh fabric called Oritone. He experimented with fetish wear tropes and scandalized the fashion world when his fall 1992 collection, Miss S&M, showcased a bevy of leggy models and variously edgy displays of leather studs, dog collars, and harnesses. And the more successful Versace became with these experiments, the more the old money bores turned up their noses, resorted to their tribalist conditioning, and complained about another southern interloper trampling their sacred tenet of good taste. So Versace called bullshit on quote-unquote good taste, because what was good taste anyway? A highly subjective code dictated by sexless biddies in heavy fur coats, a charade to keep blue-blooded bloodlines intact, a way to keep out new ideas from new people. Good taste was polite oppression. Good taste was arbitrary restraint. And to Versace, the point of wealth or luxury was freedom. Freedom to Versace meant treating his much younger sister Donatella like an adult from a young age, coming out to her early on, bringing her to nightclubs when she was still a child. Freedom meant nurturing Donatella's outre instincts and molding her into a platinum blonde camp queen who people would liken to a chain-smoking Janice from the Muppets. Freedom meant being in a long-term relationship with his partner Antonio, but also procuring well-vetted male escorts to join them periodically. Freedom meant knowing money was made to be spent and there would always be more to make. Freedom was knowing that good taste was a ruse. When the weapon of good taste failed to stop Versace, Northern Italy's polite society tried to discredit him in another way. They said the secret to Versace's success must be the so-called Calabrian Mafia, AKA Trenaghita, AKA one of the most feared organized crime groups in the world, dating back to the 19th century. It was the Calabria Mafia who kidnapped John Paul Getty III, the teenage grandson of oil bajillionaire J. Paul Getty in 1973, and what a feat of fuckuppery that was. See, this kidnapping was so poorly executed, the demand for ransom seemed like a hoax. So when notorious tightwad Grandpa Getty balked at their nearly $17 million demand, these southern Italian savages sliced off young Getty's ear stuffed it into a plastic envelope and mailed it to a Rome newspaper to do some quick convincing. But there was one problem. They'd forgotten about Italy's national postal strike. And the severed ear sat in transit for three weeks while their cash cow almost died from infection. And those were the geniuses they said were responsible for Versace's independent success. What Versace came to understand was that the old money elites weren't upset because he designed loud clothes that looked like overpriced pawn shop fantasies. They were upset because they felt threatened, because Versace represented something they couldn't control, new wealth. And new wealth's only master was freedom. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Ronnie knew a hustler when he saw one, and the dark-haired guy in the baseball hat and sunglasses was definitely on the take. 
Ronnie saw the guy around the hotel at odd hours, late nights, early mornings, always alone, always with a backpack and never saying a word. Always shooting Ronnie furtive, searching glances, but darting his eyes before they made contact. Finally, one day, Ronnie dispensed with the subtlety and made a show of cruising him hard. The guy finally spoke. See something you like? Ronnie told him he had a cute ass and he could make some money off of it. Then Ronnie asked how big he was, and the guy came up to Ronnie's room to show him. The guy said to call him Andy. Ronnie made some calls for Andy to help make him some cash, set him up with some old rich guys. And they used Ronnie's room and Ronnie took his cut that way, a small fee for a neutral location. Ronnie was a gay, HIV-positive, often barefoot, 43-year-old who'd been living at Miami's Normandy Plaza Hotel for months when one of America's most wanted rolled up and introduced himself as Andy in May 1997. With its constant churn of transients and tourists, Miami was a good town to hide in plain sight, especially someone like Andy, a.k.a. Andrew Kunanen, a 27-year-old whose half-Filipino, half-Italian features could scan Cuban. The Normandy Plaza was especially ideal, a single-occupancy hotel located in Miami's lackluster North Beach neighborhood. The place was cash-only, right on the water. Rooms started at 29 bucks a night. Phone service was extra. Staff didn't look too closely at your ID. Maids weren't concerned when he wouldn't let them in. And there was even a spot out front to park your stolen truck. At 9 p.m., the Normandy Plaza opened its back gate onto the beach so you could come and go discreetly without passing other guests or the front desk. And as long as your room bill was paid up, nobody asked questions. Q-Nodding kept the lowest possible profile, burrowed in like a nightcrawler by day, reading in his room, recovering or getting high with Ronnie, who introduced him to a crack dealer who sold $10, $40, and $100 rocks, the price variation depending on weight. After dark, Kunana would pull his baseball hat down low and head out into the salty air. He'd grab fast food or cheap takeout, cheap vodka from the liquor store, visit a nearby adult superstore to buy porn bags with names like Inches and Jock, drive to Planet Hollywood to do some reconnaissance. He'd go to gay clubs and loiter looking for rough trade. He'd get water from the bar, bum a cigarette, and wait. Cunanan found this existence tolerable for a while. But after two months, Cunanan was sick of it all. Sick of anonymity. Sick of pretending he was no one special. Because Andrew Cunanan was special. He was smart. Genius-level smart. He read the whole Bible by age seven. In the third grade, his IQ tested at 147. Cunanan was superior. Made the gifted program in junior high went to a prestigious private high school in Mahala, California with diplomats' children. Voted most likely to be remembered in the senior yearbook. Oh, he'd be remembered all right. He read Vogue, GQ, and Vanity Fair religiously. Those were his people. Kunana was spoiled, the last of four kids. He was his parents' favorite. His siblings called him the Prince. One time, the Prince got sick and missed a high school field trip and his father bought him a brand new Nissan 300ZX Turbo to make him feel better. 
Sure, his father had since fled the Philippines to evade prosecution for selling fake stocks, but Cunanan took his dad's point to heart. He deserved the finest things, and for a while, he had them. He'd been a kept man, lived with a retired millionaire, had a $33,000 infinity and an allowance of $2,500 a month, flew around the country on the sugar daddy's dime. But that arrangement fell apart after Cunanan met David the waspy-looking architect he'd fallen for and then left dead by the Minnesota lake. Sure, Cunanan had fibbed along the way to get what he deserved. Said he went to Yale or Cho. Said he was in the Israeli army, even though he wasn't Jewish. Said he had a daughter from a failed marriage. Said his parents were rich, but cut him off from his inheritance when they learned he was gay. Neglected to mention his father's exile or that his mother had gone completely batshit. Sometimes, Cunanan had a hard time keeping his story straight, but he only embellished so he didn't waste time proving he was worthy. Why should he have to prove he was special when he clearly was? He just skipped a step. Gianni Versace knew Andrew Cunanan was special. In 1990, at a San Francisco gay club, the Italian fashion king mistook Cunanan for someone he knew and briefly chatted him up. Cunanan went along with it, of course, and then told everyone for years that he knew Versace. Because Andrew Cunanan would know Versace, in a way no one else ever would. Cunanan slipped up one night at the South Beach Club Twist. He was grinding on the dance floor with a hairdresser from West Palm Beach who asked what he did for a living. I'm a serial killer, he admitted. Cunanan couldn't help himself. For once, the truth was more impressive than the lie. But then he laughed said he was in investment banking and took off, which was a shame because Twist was where he needed to be. His old friend Gianni Versace lived down the street. What Cunanan didn't know was that Gianni Versace had been quietly preparing for his own death. In August 1994, Versace noticed hearing loss and extreme swelling on his head's right side. His doctor's diagnosis, a rare form of inner ear cancer. Surgery came with the high risk of disfiguring Versace's face. A businessman of aesthetics, Versace instead opted for chemotherapy, but administered at a low enough dose that the treatment wouldn't leave him bald or listless. Versace worked throughout the chemotherapy, running the fashion house from his Milan apartment above the company's headquarters, with nurses visiting him periodically to administer his treatment. He kept his diagnosis secret but people could see something was wrong. Signor Versace must have AIDS, they said. And there were other problems. Donatella, who'd long been her brother's thickest thieves muse and sidekick, had assumed more prominence during Versace's illness. As his cancer went into remission, the shift drove a deep rift between the two. And by late 1996, Donatella was hoovering up cocaine like a human dirt devil and their relationship had become acrimonious. Meanwhile, his brother Santo tried to tamp down on Versace's spending after his recovery. So, in September 1996, Versace mostly erased both siblings from his will, leaving the majority of his fortune to his 10-year-old niece, Allegra. Then, in early 1997, Versace had an embarrassing public flap with crown jewel celebrity conquest Princess Diana. She had agreed to write the foreword for Versace's newest coffee table book, Rock and Royalty, 
since proceeds would benefit the AIDS Foundation of their mutual friend, Elton John. But when Versace sent the finished copy, the Princess of Wales was horrified to discover a family portrait with her two young sons, William and Harry, pages away from nearly nude men. She publicly demanded the forward be excised and bowed out of the highly publicized launch event. But by the morning of July 15, 1997, things were again looking up for the 50-year-old. Versace's cancer was officially in the clear, a development he'd toasted six months ago with glasses of champagne. He had reconciled with Princess Di and was already designing the world's most famous new divorcee some new threads. And earlier in the month, he had signed with Wall Street firm Morgan Stanley to take his $800 million fashion dynasty public. Gianni Versace would soon be the first Italian designer with his name on both the Borsa Italiana and the New York Stock Exchange. It was around 8.40 a.m. when Versace returned to his South Beach mansion after buying five magazines from a cafe. He worked for a second to decipher which key opened up his front door. And as he did so, Versace smiled at a passing neighbor. And then, within seconds, Gianni Versace was brain dead. Cunanan's first bullet hit the base of Versace's brain, tore the top of his spinal cord and exited from his neck. A second bullet tore through the right side of Versace's face, cracked the top of his skull, and then stuck in his head. Versace slumped on the steps. Cunanan walked off, leaving behind a shocked eyewitness in a gory tableau. And there was so much blood, the front steps looked vandalized with thick crimson paint. So much blood, in fact, that the blood still remains. Right where Versace's body lay on that day, his sunglasses, sandals, and a dead bird. In a freakish coincidence, a piece of the first bullet had exited Versace's neck, hit the front gate, and then killed a bird. It wasn't just any bird that died by Versace's side. It was a dove, specifically a mourning dove. Mourning with a U after its mournful coo. The Sun King was dead and nature wept. Kurt DeMars, in room 322, said he'd be down to pay his bill in 10 minutes. 30 minutes went by. The Normandy Plaza hotel clerk went upstairs to find room 322 empty. On Saturday, July 12, 1997, Kurt DeMars, a.k.a. Andrew Cunanan, skipped out on his last bill and then reemerged three days later to carry out his favorite murder. Six days later, there'd still be no trace of the serial killer. Even though 12 arms of the law were devoted to Cunanan's capture, the killer was still out there somewhere when Versace's memorial service took place on Tuesday, July 22nd, exactly one week after his death. A crowd of more than 2,000 gathered at Milan's Duomo, the city's exquisite Gothic cathedral, along with a bevy of supermodels Sting and a sobbing Elton John who was comforted by Princess Diana. The following day, at about 3.45 in the afternoon, Fernando Carreria, a 71-year-old property caretaker and 20-year resident of Florida, was making a routine check-in on a houseboat 41 blocks north of Versace's mansion. Carreria's wife was with him when he noticed the front door's busted top lock. 
The bottom lock was already unlatched. Somebody's been in here, he told his wife. Carreria pushed the door open. Inside, all the lights were on and the curtains were closed. Carreria headed to the living room. Sofa cushions were on the floor with a blanket. An overturned chair was positioned like a makeshift barricade. Then, Carreria saw a pair of sandals. Somebody is in here now, he told his wife. Miami had crimes, so Carreria kept a handgun in his waistband for moments just like this. As he went to grab it, a loud, startling bang rang out from upstairs. Carreria and his wife both ran outside, terrified. Carreria thought the intruder had shot him and missed. He didn't want to be a sitting duck, so he and his wife hid in the bushes. Cops came quickly with the ongoing manhunt. They'd been on high alert for suspicious local activity and immediately approached the scene as if the intruder could be Versace's killer. Over the next five hours, a fusillade of special forces, helicopters, boats, dogs, and grenades laid siege to the houseboat. They'd been waiting for this opportunity for days. After the tear gas cleared, two sergeants ventured inside. And they found Qunan in an upstairs bedroom. His eyes were open. Blood covered his ears, eyes, and lips. He was dead. Qunanan had shot himself in the mouth with the same gun he'd used to kill Versace. The sergeants who'd ID'd his body high-fived. For eight frantic days, Andrew Philip Cunanan loomed large in the national consciousness. But here in a stained bed, propped up by bloody pillows, he looked like any other South Beach club scum. Small, pathetic, nothing unique at all, scoffed one of the high-fivers. The Miami Herald dubbed the crime scene a houseboat of horrors, but inside scanned more yuppie tweaker den. A set of binoculars sat on the kitchen counter. The broken front door lock was in the fridge butter tray. Pill bottles, rubbing alcohol, and a bloody bandage littered a coffee table. And there were fast food wrappers and used cotton balls in the bathtub. And in a pile of magazines was a freshly thumbed copy of Vogue. It was a very Andrew touch. Eerily, the houseboat was about 400 yards away from the golf course where Sylvester Stallone learned about Cunanan. The whole ordeal shook Stallone to the core. He put his Miami Beach villa on the market in August 1997, right after Copland was released. Six weeks after Versace's murder, Princess Diana died in the limousine ride that claimed her life. She wore black Versace satin shoes. In 2000, Donatella sold Gianni's South Beach mansion for $19 million to a telecom bigwig who remodeled it into a luxury hotel and event space. In 2013, the former Versace mansion was resold at auction for $41.5 million. The winning bidder was a scion of Jordache Denham. The second highest bid came from another famous con man prone to hyperbolic flourishes and vulgar wealth. But Donald Trump came up a half million short. The property remains a luxury hotel that's primary selling point is its Versace mansion past. The hotel's gold-flecked pool is a popular backdrop for Instagram influencers who can also take selfies in front of the gate where Versace once lay dead. Two out-of-town men were recently found dead in one of the mansion's suites, an apparent murder-suicide and they were found on the afternoon of July 14th, 2021, the day before the 24th anniversary of Versace's murder. And in the annals of American true crime, the assassination of Gianni Versace 
has become a turn of the millennium classic, up there with the O.J. Simpson trial. It has everything. Glamour, sex, celebrity, lurid crime scenes, a serial killer, and a Donald Trump postscript. It's the kind of thing that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Batlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.